The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So in the guided meditation, I was talking a little bit about recognizing wisdom, recognizing this functioning of understanding. Uh, Earlier in the week, I talked about the perspective of wise view, which we can bring to our experience as a form of wisdom. The wisdom I'm talking about now is more the the result of that perspective, that we we actually understand something directly in the moment. And um, it's possible to begin to recognize that functioning, you know, that, that that happens. It's not something that we're doing, but that it's, it's arising. At one point in my um, time in Burma with Saido Utejaniya, he said, he asked me to, um, again, you know, he, he said it sounded like an instruction, but you know, he said, notice, notice when wisdom arises, notice the arising of wisdom. And uh, I, was, I was like, what the heck do you mean? <laughs> it was very hard for me to understand that. Um, but, you know, I didn't, he didn't give me much guidance, and I just went off and started watching my experience. And uh, the way I will frame it now is that um, when we notice that there's a kind of a little shift or release or a, a sense of a, a perspective un, uh, change around our experience, that is wisdom at work. Um, and so there's many ways that can happen. Um, I, I named a few of them in the guided meditation, and, and some of the ones, I'm just going to mention them, I'm not going to do a long talk about this, but, um, uh, and I have given talks about this, if you're interested in this, I, there's a Dharma talk, I think it's called something like um, recognizing wisdom, or something like that. Um, I've given it on retreat, I've given it here um, at IMC, and so there's several of them. If you search for the word wisdom and then look for the talks I've given uh, about that topic, you get a whole uh, 40 minutes, 45 minutes on this topic. Um, so I mentioned the, the kind of shift of from being caught by something to being not caught. That shift is wisdom that allows us to understand in the moment, oh, this is just it's that, it's that understanding objects are just objects, but it's a direct understanding of that. It's not something we're bringing to it. So we feel a difference. There's, there's a shift. And so that shift is a result of wisdom. At one point, um, somebody asked the question around wisdom. They began, this, the, her question was what started me thinking about offering a talk on this. And the question was, what are the symptoms of wisdom? I thought that was a pretty cool way to put it. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like wisdom arises. How do we know it? You know, so what are the symptoms of it? And, and this shift is a symptom of wisdom. It, it's, it's, uh, it's letting you know that wisdom is happening. Uh, I also mentioned recognizing the, uh, the conditioned nature of experience, seeing, seeing something happen and then something follow from it and something follow from it, kind of how things unfold. We see, we see that. Um, and that uh, is also wisdom that allows us to see that. Um, so the, the con- seeing the conditions, seeing the causes and conditions, as you see a pattern unfolding, um, that is wisdom at work. 
the other day I described watching the mind um, you know see while I was in the kitchen cutting an apple see the thought see a thought associated you know that associative thought of being with a f- my ex-partner at a fruit stand and I was really angry at my ex-partner and so you know so that seeing the apple the thought arose conditioned by the apple and then conditioned on that thought was the desire to jump on that thought and think thoughts to get angry. So the mind saw all of that happening, that conditioned nature of experience, and then also understood the conditioned possibility of release in that moment. And as I said, the mind let it go like a a pot, uh, touching a hot pot. That's wisdom at work, that, that understanding that leads to that release. So that seeing the conditioned nature of experience is also wisdom at work. Sometimes if we're observing something, you know, uh, and we, we turn our attention to uh, something that's kind of sticky or just like, oh, that's arising. As the mindfulness gets more continuous, gets stronger, sometimes what happens in that moment is that thing just vanishes. Just like, it's like not even there. It just, sometimes I'll see this with thoughts. I saw this yesterday, actually. <laughs> you're watching things and you're, you're witnessing, you're mindful. Because I was mindful of the process of how my mind created that piece of, that, that dharma that I was going to speak about. And I was so aware of that. It's like the awareness became more interesting. <laughs> and poof! And, and there was actually, there was no, and I still, I thought several times yesterday, what was that, you know? Tried to put my mind in that place. It was so gone. You know, it's just like, it was gone. And so sometimes, like if, if we're watching thoughts, if we see the arising of thought, for instance, and we're very mindful of it, in that moment, we, we, we see the thought, we know the thought, and in the next moment, that thought has vanished. And it has vanished so thoroughly, we cannot remember what the thought was. So rec- seeing something disappear quickly like that can be wisdom at work. Sometimes it's just that, you know, sometimes that's that thing of when you're, when you're you know, um, wandering through a room, and I've seen this happen too. This isn't so much wisdom. This is the mind shifting to something else. Like, you know, you, you, like I'll, I'll think of something. Oh, I need to go upstairs and get this. And then I'll, go, I'll head there. I'll start in that direction. The attention shifts to something else. I start thinking about something else, and that replaces that thought, and then I can't remember it. So that's not so much wisdom. That's, that's um, the attention. That's an attention shift. Actually, I just watched a very fun program last night. I, it's, I'm, I'm seeing it on my computer. It happened a while ago, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a program... I'll look for it and see if I can get you the actual name. It's a National Geographic program, I believe, um, on the brain and different ways the brain functions. And in particular, it's interested in ways that our our mind fools us. And um, the function of attention, or the factor of attention, is is a, a a big way that our our mind fools us. So when we're focused on something, when we turn our attention to something fully, um, then we're not going to see other things. You know, other things are going to f- 
you know, just fall out of our environment. But then, you know, and that's just the natural functioning of mind. And yet the, the difficulty with that or the place where that can be an issue, and this has real-world implications, <laughs> is, um, is that uh, we believe we've seen things accurately. We believe our minds are like a tape recorder seeing everything, but they are not. And so when we um, focus on something, our minds are actually just not taking in lots and lots of stuff. So, so you know, they had, they had this guy doing this magic trick thing, and they're saying, see if you can see how he does this, you know. So, so you're really focused on the guy. And then, you know, they have, like, all kinds of weird things going on in the background, like big bunnies walk by and gorillas walk by and, and, and it's like, I did not see the bunny. I did not see the bunny. <laughs> they played it back. It's like, yeah, that, that bunny was there. <laughs> and so, you know, but, but what we typically think is that our, our minds are recording things accurately and they're not. So the, um, that's delusion, that believing we're seeing everything. And, uh, you know, some of the real-world implications for this is that if there's, like, you know, eyewitness, eyewitness testimony. Mm-hmm. I think of eyewitness. Eyewitness testimony is so unreliable. It's hard for me to believe that, that people can actually get convicted on eyewitness testimony. But they do, even on single eyewitness testimony. At one point, I was um, uh, on a jury, or, or not on a jury, but I was in a jury pool, and it was for something major. Um, uh, I, I think there was even potentially a murder involved. And they had a whole set of questions. We had to answer this huge long form before we even were in the jury pool. Um, and one of the things is, uh, would you convict a murderer on, a, on, the, uh, on the testimony of a single eyewitness? And I, I said no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would not. And then, and then, then somebody said, "But of course, it was a reliable witness." You know, so, no, I would not do that. You know, there's so I understand so much about the unreliability of our perception, and yet it's at, at least at that point. I don't know how long ago it was. You know, uh, I mean, it was maybe ten, fifteen years ago. At that point in California, it was legal to convict a murderer. I believe it was a murder on single eyewitness testimony. So, you know, this is, this is, this is real-world implications, understanding this is how our mind works, you know, this. And so when, when um, our attention uh, collapses like that, you know, it, it, we can just completely forget things. Oh, the other thing in that program, uh, I think it was, I can't remember, I'll tell you tomorrow. Uh, somebody, this hypnotist has the capacity to um, hypnotize somebody and then have them forget a concept. And so this is, this is kind of what happens to us as our, as our minds let go of something. And it's very thorough how, quick, how much our minds can let go of something. And this, this hypnotist had this person forget the concept four. 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 The number four. And then he held up his hands and said, count. Count my hands. She went, one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. <laughs> she was very confused. He said, try again. She did it again. Mm-hmm. And she, she said, 
he said, do I have 11 fingers? She said, it seems like I'm certainly counting you have 11 fingers. So she, was, she knew, but she didn't understand that she had lost four. So there are, you know, there's ways that our mind functions that are quite amazing. Some of them wisdom, some of them not. So you know, I'm trying to point to some of those areas, which you know, some of those experiences, which are wisdom, and some of what we experience is around wisdom is a feeling of release and of um, clarity. You know, that we understand something, and so that that space of forgetting something, there's not clarity there usually. You know, uh, you know, it's like. Uh, we had turned, that was more a factor of attention thoroughly going to something else and just letting things go. Um, then um, other ways to recognize wisdom. Um, we recognize sometimes a sense of self being created in the moment, a feeling of this is me. And recognizing that as an experience rather than buying into the me, that's also wisdom that understands that. We also can directly know, and I began to talk about this a little bit yesterday, I think, we can directly, we can understand, it's, we can understand that what we are experiencing is not what's actually out there. But what we are experiencing is created by our minds. Um, we, we understand, and this is, this is very much what I was pointing to about the, uh, the attention thing, that our, our mental functioning creates our experience of what we see. And so everything that we experience, you know, Everything that we know, everything that we experience is a, is a, I'll say, let's say it's mediated through our mind. We cannot directly know what is out there. We only know it through the functioning of our minds. This, um, this under, we can maybe begin to have a, a kind of an understanding of this, uh, an intellectual understanding of this. Um, just through reflecting on thinking about what's happening. You know, there's light waves coming into the eye, they're hitting the retina, and there's like nerves firing that take the information to the occipital lobe, and, and then the, the, uh, the experience of seeing happens. Um, it's like the, the entire way we know what is going on out there is mediated through our bodies and our minds. So it's constructed. It's completely constructed. It's not, I mean, I, I am not of the mind-only school. There are certain, um, uh, certain Buddhist uh, traditions that believe everything is mind. Um, I think there's stuff out there. I think you're out there. I think you're sitting out there, and you know, I think you're sitting there, and I, uh, but what I know of you and what I know of this room is what my mind creates. And so that we can understand that intellectually, but there's also a way that we can, we can understand that directly. Um, and I, it's, it's, it's hard to describe that experience except, uh, except that um, 
Well, it feels like it feels like an understanding. It's it's. I was I was meditating in Hawaii. This is an example of this kind of thing. I was meditating in Hawaii. I was doing a, a long retreat, and it was a it was in an area of country, and there were very little human sounds there. Um, and uh, I was just surrounded by the sounds of nature, many birds, little tons of birds in Hawaii. There and and I, I I watched the mind receive this, you know. And what it felt like at times was that I'd hear a sound, and it felt like the mind was kind of going out and landing in space for that sound. And and it, I I heard sound sound sound. There's all of this, and I felt what it felt like was that the mind is constructing the space based on the sounds. And that was a recognition of the, the mind-constructing experience. So it was, it was an experience of that. There was that recognition that it wasn't... It, maybe that's all I'll say about that. Again, the, the, one of the maybe um, hallmarks of wisdom is a kind of an aha experience. They're like, wow, understanding something feeling directly into something for, for many kinds of wisdoms. There's other ways wisdom works uh, that doesn't necessarily have that aha experience. It's almost more like we understand um, the absence of something. So uh, we can understand and recognize when some kind of reactivity is not there. So we're, you know, in a grocery store and, and uh, you know, somebody is ahead of us and chatting with the cashier and taking a long time. You know, sometimes that can create a frustration or a agitation. Or, and sometimes it's just like, wow, this is what's happening. And, and it's, uh, it's not that we saw the arising of uh, frustration and we're hanging out with it. It's just like frustration did not arise. And that's also wisdom at work. Partly we can understand that through kind of reflecting back. It's, I think what, what happens to me in those moments is like the, the recognition of the understanding, I used to be reactive here. This kind of situation used to trigger me. It's not triggering me right now. And I, and I usually know it probably will trigger me again at some point, but, you know, but the, see, we can see or recognize. It's more recognizing than seeing. It's more recognizing the, the absence of something. We're, we're seeing that reactivity is not arising. And wisdom, wisdom can be at work there too. And so recognizing the ways wisdom works um, and the experience of wisdom, it supports confidence. It supports actually kind of letting the, the wisdom sink in a little bit more. Um, when I first started this exploration, uh, I didn't articulate to myself, and, and I would not encourage trying to figure out what the wisdom is. I would more, and this is how I began with this kind of exploration. I just began by recognizing, ah, oh, there's a shift. Wisdom must be working. <laughs> you know, so just like, ah, oh, thank you, wisdom, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and then over time, 
you know, actually a couple of years it really took for me to be able to, to clearly articulate and understand what wisdom was working. And I'm not even sure it's necessary to articulate it, but I think it is helpful to, to recognize this is wisdom doing its job. It's not me. I'm not responsible. I'm not responsible for this. It's, it, the conditions have been created that allow this uh, wisdom to arise. So, that's probably enough on that. I would say the resilience is also a symptom of wisdom. It's not the wisdom itself so much. I I would say the wisdom is what allows the resilience to happen. I don't think the recognition is necessary for the wisdom. The wisdom can happen whether we're, ne- we're aware of it or not. Early on in our practice, it takes some effort to uh, do that dance of mindfulness. You know, over time, it gets much more natural and just kind of almost automatic. But, but at initially, it's like, yeah, you have to work actually to not follow through on the habits. And, and we can make that shift. Over time, it, it actually sounded like it took you a, a few minutes to get to that place of, oh, wow, I can be with the awareness of greed and, and shift into that place in the morning. But after a long day, after we've been doing a lot, you know, conditions are different. You know, and I've been saying this sometimes, this is like wisdom can be present at some times that allows a certain kind of seeing, and then conditions are different. And at that point, there was still enough capacity to know, wow, yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing this. And it's like, you know, it's like the mind just can't stop or it's like it, it knows that picking up, trying to do that practice you'd done in the morning, it would just like collapse the mind. And so acceptance at that point, at least you didn't like give up on the mindfulness. It's like, yeah, I see this. Yep. Sometimes I guess I just eat these things. Sometimes I guess I just follow the habit. And, and that's really useful to see that sometimes, uh, sometimes our awareness, our capacity for um, certain kinds of investigation is not, it's not the time for it. The mind, it, it, it's, so we, we, we do the best we can. And at that point, it's just like, yep, I get to see this pattern. Okay, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. And if it has, and sometimes even with more consequential patterns than the one you were talking about. Excuse me, sorry. (laughs) Um, Sometimes there are more consequential patterns that we engage in than the one that you were describing. Um, And even then, with even more consequential patterns, sometimes we find ourselves blurting something out, saying something. We're aware even that we're doing it. And yet, the capacity to just have a pause and say, oh, don't go there, it's just not there. And and our, our work is really, at that point, it's like, okay, the conditions were not available at that moment. It's like, this is my condition now. I see that I've done that. And... I need to live with the consequences. You know, I need to, I need to be able to... So, so if we've, we've taken an action that has more consequences in the world, like saying something that 
made somebody feel hurt, then we, I, I think I've said at times, you know, I don't know if I've said it during this week, get good at cleaning up the mess. You know, it's, uh, because the, the regret, the self-flagellation is not useful. You know, that's, that tends to be where we go. And I, I explored some uh, sense about that uh, at a while. I, I, after a while in my practice, I began to recognize that self-judgment piece around, I didn't do that right, I, I was bad, I was wrong. You know, that was a, par- a big part of my mind, that self-negativity. And at some point I began to recognize that was arising because some part of my mind believed that there was a belief that if I didn't do that self-flagellation, that I would do that thing again in the future. So there was a belief in that, uh, you know, that this would be effective for helping me not do this in the future. And I, I almost immediately recognized, you know, that's not even true. You know, there's something else in our system that understands that creates harm. The system doesn't really want to create harm. And so that piece, there's, there's a, a subtle difference between um, uh, the feeling of, wow, that created harm, ooh, that hurts to create harm, and the sense of guilt about having done something. They're different. They're different, but they feel very similar. Um, so there's, there's a mind that, that, that recognizes harm and, whew, uh, there's, a, there's a resonance of the harm and an understanding that was harm. That's not self-flagellation. That's just the recognizing the consequences of creating harm. There's, the extra piece is, I'm a bad person. I should, I should you know, <laughs> whatever we do to ourselves. Um, so, so getting really good cleaning up the mess doesn't mean self-flagellating. But anyway, I know you need to go, so I don't want to to keep you when, whenever you need to go, yeah. So in terms of continu- being, you know, cultivating a continuity of mindfulness, does sitting, is it, is it necessary to sit? Yes. Is it a requirement? Um, so the, what I would say in my experience is that for most people, sitting greatly helps that continuity of mindfulness. It, it, it simplifies things so much that we can begin to understand what it means to have a little bit more continuity of mindfulness. And we also begin to understand um, you know, some of the, uh, the clarity, the, and by clarity I, I mean I guess the understanding. Some of what, what we can, we begin to recognize the kinds of things we can understand, um, you know, the, the, the patterns that can be revealed in the subconscious. Um, that's also possible in daily life. In my own experience in general, the uh, capacity that we have to um, uh, witness things in our, it, below the horizon of our subconscious is greater in our sitting practice, in our retreat practice, than it is in our daily life practice. But I, I'm actually, I'm actually pretty. Uh, I think 
there's a lot more capacity for being present in daily life than we could think is possible. As I said yesterday, than we can even imagine. There's way more capacity than we would imagine. And so we might think, you know, oh, I can only see how thoughts arise and what leads on from that in the sitting. Um, but it's way more possible in daily life to see things like that. But what I do see often is that the, the capacity to see things is, is, is deeper in our sitting than in our daily life. And so our daily life kind of lags a little bit in our sitting. So, you know, the, the kinds of things, um, the kind of understandings, the, the, the settledness of mind that I got to on my early retreats, um, I would say that that's a pretty, that's maybe pretty close to where I am in my daily life now. Um, so, you know, and yet, and now on retreats I can go way further, much deeper, and, and I'm not able to go that deep in my, in my daily life. Um, so I, I, my sense is that the, the capacity lags the sitting practice. Um, and I will also say that there's way more possibility of cultivating continuity of mindfulness in our daily lives just in our daily lives, without the sitting. Um, you know, even if we aren't able to sit, if certain circumstances in our life, I would, I would encourage you to sit. I definitely encourage you to sit. But if there are days that you find, you know, I've just got, you know, too many things today. Uh, you know, what I sometimes do with that is like, you know, one day... Um, Somebody had called me, it was before a retreat, and, and they said, I need to know, I need to know by, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning, what's left in those boxes that we had at the last retreat? Because I need to go shopping for the next retreat, and I need to know what's there. And I usually, you know, did, the, did my meditation at that time, but I needed to go to those boxes, so I didn't have the opportunity to do my meditation. But what I decided to do was make that inventory my meditation. So I went into my garage very mindfully. It's like, okay, this is my time. This is my time to meditate, and I get to do this with inventory. <laughs> so, so sometimes we can pick activities of our day where we don't have to do too much. You know, inventory needs a little bit of thinking and recording, but, you know, it's like I was just, I was as mindful as I could be about, okay, you know, three cans of beans, okay. Three cans of beans. <laughs> you know, just knowing what, what was there and, and, and using that time. And so you may find that you can have little chunks of your day like, you know, loading the dishwasher or washing dishes or, you know, something that's a little chunk of time where you can let that be. It's like let that be your meditation for the day if you don't have time to do the sitting. Uh, just see, can I cultivate, you know, with an intention like we do in the sitting to come back when we notice our mind wandering. Not like in the, in the daily life I have said I often encourage, don't try so hard to be mindful. You know, just because we do have to, you know, think about things and plan and, you know, make presentations. And, uh, and so, you know, just notice those moments of mindfulness re-arising. But it can also be useful in daily life to take chunks of the day. You know, where there's a stretch of time where you know, okay, this is my activity. Like the whole morning, um, 
bathing, brushing teeth, getting dressed, making the bed, that whole process of getting up and getting ready for the day maybe takes 15, 20 minutes. Make that a meditation, you know. Consciously, you know, it's not that you're trying to force yourself to stay mindful so much, but the, the intention is to recognize when the mind has gotten lost and bring it back to the present. And so we're not, we're not just letting our mind go off into thought. And so taking chunks of the day where we um, cultivate that continuity also. And sometimes, some days we don't have time to sit like that. So I would say it's greatly helpful. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it's actually required. I think it takes it takes a lot of inner commitment to do the practice in daily life if you're not sitting. A huge amount of this is my practice because sitting is not possible. You know, I, I, I just it, don't, don't have the conditions that are letting that unfold. So the, um, the, the exploration of recognizing that, um, that thoughts precede action and that sometimes, uh, sometimes those thoughts preceding an action, we might not want to do that action and we can take some action to replace the thought or do something, you know, shift the attention and that's helpful. But there's sometimes when uh, actually the thoughts come up and we actually need to hold on to them. We need to kind of follow them. And um, wondering how to work with that. You know, often I think in talking about thoughts and meditation we do tend to um, skew the discussion towards the letting go of thoughts. And this is a piece that I think uh, uh, this particular style of practice does um, explore more that we are interested in the thoughts. Are they useful thoughts? Are they, are they thoughts that are going to support us? Or are they not useful thoughts? And so that's a good check, you know, to, when, when you notice thoughts are happening. Are these thoughts useful or not? Are they necessary or not? And if they are necessary, it sounds like you're recognizing they're necessary, um, the ones that you were referring to. Um, you, you could just, you know, notice that Yes, this is this is something that I need to do. This is an important piece, and kind of just land there to to recognize that. Um, now, in terms of doing something else when you get to work, so um, so yes, when we we know we have to do something, thoughts there, and then we find ourselves not doing them. There are different reasons why that might happen. It might happen because other things kind of grab our attention and we kind of forget about those things. Or it might be that we remember, but there's a, a resistance. There's an avoidance. There's a... Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> what I really encourage there is, um, first of all, noticing the procrastination. Noticing the feeling of resistance. There, that's... What's happening there is you're thoroughly caught by the resistance and believe it to some extent. It's interesting how we can believe, um, uh, even as we know intellectually, you know, we know intellectually, often we know intellectually procrastination is not helpful. (laughs) And yet there's some piece of us, some deeper piece of us that 
just is so resistant that we believe the resistance. There's, when we're caught by an attitude like that, we're caught by resistance, we're caught by, it's, as I talked about the other day, our world collapses to that. We are thoroughly believing the perspective of that state, which is not doing that thing right now is really what's making me happy. <laughs> Somehow it believes that that procrastination is what's making me happy. And often I've seen in my own mind what it does is it decides to do something that it thinks is a little more pleasant. Like maybe it'll play a game of solitaire on the iPad or something, you know, so there's a little. And so there's, there's a, an overlay of something else that we're doing. But there's that resistance that we're not really clearly noticing. So that's the first thing to, to recognize. Um, okay, resistance is happening. Procrastination is happening. Um, now, in the meditation, in the practice itself, you know, it's, it's irrelevant whether we take action and do the thing that we're procrastinating about or simply notice the procrastination. In, a, in our practice, it doesn't matter. Now, in our lives, it probably matters. And so this is something we need to use our, you know, our wisdom for navigating our lives about. Um, in the recognizing of the procrastination, we might simply be curious of, okay, what is, you know, do you, I'm just going to sit here for five minutes and notice this procrastination. Maybe, maybe that allows it to release, maybe it doesn't, but, you know, I'm just, you know, so the, the, the pure practice perspective doesn't particularly care whether we, uh, whether the procrastination just continues and we watch it for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or whether it releases and we actually do something. The purity of the practice doesn't care. It's just mindfulness. We're just cultivating mindfulness. It doesn't matter what we're cultivating mindfulness on. In our lives, we need to use some wisdom about what is useful and functional. And so, um, that's a place where the kind of reality of our lives, I think it's helpful to enter. It may not be useful uh, in a work environment to sit there for 20 minutes and look at procrastination. That's, that the context, the larger context of experience, isn't, that's not appropriate. Um, so, so we need to recognize that and then maybe make an active decision. You know, it's like, okay, Am I going to um, just start doing this thing right now? Just like, almost like leap over the procrastination and the resistance and just step into it. If you do that, again, what I'd encourage is as much as possible be aware. It's like, no, yep, I'm leaping over that resistance. I'm going to be doing this even as I'm resisting. Be aware of the resistance as you step into the activity. You might be able to watch and recognize, yep, okay, resistance, yep, but I'm doing it. And maybe, maybe at a certain point be able to shift and just let go of attending to the resistance. But often what we do in procrastination, if we're going to step over the procrastination, is we repress the resistance. And we're just forcing ourselves, we're powering through. And what I'd like to encourage is something along the lines of, yep, resistance and I'm doing it. Yep, resistance and I'm going to do this thing anyway. And not uh, repressing the resistance. We don't actually have to want to do something in order to do it. <laughs> that's another, that's another uh, belief of the procrastination is I have to want to do it in order to do it. But we don't have to want to do it. And so we can know we don't want to do it 
and do it. Uh, so again, exploring that possibility, exploring the being aware of that. It also might be that the, the, the resistance, the procrastination is strong enough that we, we, what we do is we get to watch ourselves, kind of like the, the other uh, discussion this morning. We get to watch ourselves eat the almonds. You know, it's like, okay, I guess I'm going to go have a snack instead of... So it's like, hmm, I'm, I, I'm realizing that I'm avoiding here. But I, the, the capacity to not avoid doesn't seem to be there. So I get to watch that. So as much as possibly being present for what is unfolding uh, and using our discernment, of course, about the context of the situation in terms of making our choices. Are, so I'm hearing... I'm going to record a little bit here. I'm, I'm hearing um, um, the, kind of the um, the deep conditioned patterns from childhood playing in, and I think I think part of it is uh, it sounds like the the activity that you're talking about being dangerous. You know, you, you mentioned the paring knife and you know, mom hovering over with the paring knife you know, while you're using learning to use a paring knife and the anticipation of disaster there. That kind of getting embedded in your system, that kind of uh, approach of to life. Um, is, that, uh, is that related to, and you can just nod <laughs> rather than speak, is that related to the... Uh, the practice of, of meditation itself, that there's the feeling of impending disaster, or the activity that you're doing, the latter. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that, that there's the sense of, if I, if I do this, then I'm going to land in something that's really messy. Yeah, kind of an explosion. And that just don't want to go there for that. So there's that, the, the, that sense. Um, you know, that sometimes what, again, with the, the mindfulness, there's this kind of interesting navigation we have to make between um, um, the exploration around being present for what's happening and can we be present for what's happening. So, you know, can you know the discomfort of, and it sounds like you, you have been able to begin to feel into, yeah, this is uncomfortable. And, and yet the, the, it sounds like the impending disaster belief is so strong that um, uh, it, it kind of, that's, there's, there, there's being caught by that impending disaster belief. So there's the, un- the discomfort that, that has the extra charge around it because of that impending disaster kind of fear. So there's the fear, there's the... Um, you know, I'm going to be overwhelmed if I do this. I'm not going to be able to function for the rest of the day if I do this, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes we have to, um, again, you know, there's this navigation of, do I just watch? Do I just, do I just um, witness what's going on? Or do I, um, you know, take some action and, um, you know, see what happens? And in our daily, life, in, in in meditation, we can watch and and use the um, the kind of guide around overwhelm as our choice to divert the attention. 
Sometimes in our daily life we have to we have to make a choice to go in a direction just because that's what our life is making us do. And so the practice in the practice we can we can be more uh, responsive to what our minds are about in in the world we sometimes just have to we have to do the best we can as I've been saying and so um, uh, at if, if what what I like to say though in either case I mean especially in the practice side is you know the feeling of overwhelm no matter how it comes about you know it's like Usually, that's not a direction that's so helpful. So, if if the feeling of overwhelm is uh, is there, then fi- you know it's like respect the fear, respect the fear of the overwhelm, and 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 you can hang out. Okay, so this is uncomfortable. This is if I if I if I step into that. The fear, so there's the fear of the overwhelm and then there's the overwhelm itself, which more I think right now the fear is the, is the issue. And so can you not only notice the discomfort but the fear of the overwhelm? That would be the kind of practice side of it is, you know, you don't have to push into the fear. You don't have to, to, to force yourself to, as I kind of said earlier, you know, we can choose to step over our resistance and just do something really helpful if we do that to not repress the, 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 the feeling, the resistance or the fear. It would be kind of like, okay, what, what's, what's going to happen right now? I mean, so that would be the pure practice side, just noticing the resistance. You don't necessarily need to act on it. You just watch it. If it dissipates to a certain level, then you might step into the action. But again, in daily life, we may not be able to do that. So if possible, I would say in the shifting to daily life, the activities we need to do, it's like, okay, there's this uncomfortableness. There's a fear of the consequences or fear of overwhelm doing something. If you find you're in a situation, okay, I actually have to do this right now, or you know, this is something I want to do right now, even though I'm feeling the fear, what I would encourage is knowing, okay, I'm putting, I'm, I'm, I'm taking out this box. Whew, a rush of fear. Okay, yep, fear and taking out this box. That's what's happening. Okay, not overwhelmed yet. Okay, open the box. Whew, another rush of fear. Okay, okay, I can, I can know that. And I'm going to pick up the first thing in the box. If, if at any point in that process the overwhelm begins then I, I would say you need to stop doing that thing um, if, if you have the option to stop doing that thing. Um, you know, sometimes we, we don't have the option. To, much of the time we do. In our normal lives, we do. But, you know, there are situations in war, in, you know, bombings, and, you know, it's like we don't have a choice. We have to do things even if we are overwhelmed by fear. Um, and so, you know, but if you, if you don't, you know, if you don't have to go there, because when we're overwhelmed and we have to act, some part of our mind is shutting down. Some part of our mind is kind of closing off and, and con- constricting. And that's generally not so helpful in our whole psyche. So that's a, that's a little bit of 
suggestion, what I'd encourage is seeing, can you step into the activity, not saying, push the fear away, I'm going to do this, trying to force through the fear, but knowing that there's fear and you're doing it, so that you're holding the paradox of that. But then if you see the mind move into overwhelm, know that it's okay. It's like, you feel, you feel the tumbling or the collapsing. It's like, okay, this, this is, this, let me take some breaths, do the, the tools that we have to, to work with overwhelm. Um, useless? useless gazing, uh, a strategy for working with overwhelm. Um, so if you're, if you're finding yourself really caught in something, even if you only have a couple minutes, this can, if you remember, remembering is the key. <laughs> if you're really kind of, the mind is just like really collapsed down, but there's enough awareness to know, wow, completely collapsed. You know, if, you're, if you don't have enough awareness for that, then you're not going to be able to do this. But often there's enough uh, sense of, wow, the mind is just collapsed. Is there some strategy, some go-to strategy that I can use? I've suggested you cultivate a go-to strategy for overwhelm. This is one I found really useful. Um, I call it useless gazing. Um, uh, actually, that term came from uh, another teacher, Eric Kolvig, although his description of it was a little different. My um, description or my practice of it came more from Gill, um, where he just said to me, you know, just practice this every now and then, you know, just using seeing. So, uh, and you can do this outside, you can do it inside. Inside in a room, I find it useful to, um, so what you'll do here is you'll look at a corner, some place where two lines join for about a second, and then shift to another corner, and then shift to another corner, and move your head, actually. It's helpful to move your head while you're doing this. So we'll do this for a few moments. So look. Really connect with the corner. And shift. Connect to a corner. Connect to a corner. Shift. About every second. What do you experience as you do that? Mm 